Habib with Our American Stories. Here we tell stories about everything, music, love, sports, history, and every now and then, some public policy stories, but only those that are compelling enough to make, well, ordinary folks care. Not because people are yelling about something on TV, and it's never, ever about politics. And I can't think of a better person to do that with than Charles Murray, the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Each of his many books has sparked vigorous and fascinating debate, three in particular published in three different decades, come together to tell a story that we're going to dig into today. His 1984 book, Losing Ground, laid the intellectual foundation for discussing welfare. His 2012 book, Coming Apart, showed how the decline of marriage, industriousness, honesty, and religiosity had devastated the working class. And his 2006 book, In Our Hands, explores what we might do differently. And in addition, that 2006 book is ready for a re-release. So, Charles, it may surprise some of our listeners that you, a libertarian, want to replace the welfare state with a universal basic income. What's going on here? Well, my first defensive reaction is, hey, I'm just following the lead of uh, Milton Friedman. And you can't get any better as a libertarian than Milton. Uh, he, He was the originator of the idea of the negative income tax. And his view was, but look, if you're going to have a welfare state, it's better just to give people money than to have all these bureaucracies stage managing people's lives. I have a, a little more ambitious version of this, Lee. I'm saying, look, it is the fact that we have a couple of trillion dollars a year of transfer payments in the United States. They are not going away. I don't care how many libertarians we elect to Congress. <laughs> right. So let's let's have a grand compromise between the left and the right. And I will give the left a lot of money spent on transfers, uh, especially to the disadvantaged, if they will give me small government in terms of the capacity of government to stage manage people's lives. You know, Charles, it's a great moral challenge, actually, and it's it's shocking that we hadn't thought of it earlier. We're always accused of not having compassion. And, well, they, they ride that all the way to the bank. We counter in a real strong way that we do with this proposition. Yeah, because uh, we would do a few things if we had a universal basic income that had completely eluded social policy for the last 50 years. The first thing that would happen, the most obvious, is that we would get rid of involuntary poverty. Let me, Lee, just give a few nuts and bolts here about how much money we're talking about. Yep. Uh, I, I am proposing a $13,000 per year uh, grant to everyone over the age of 21, of which 3000 uh, needs to be re- uh, used for health care insurance, leaving $10,000 of disposable income. And this is deposited monthly, electronically, into a known bank account. So you have $10,000 of disposable income. When I say you get rid of involuntary poverty, what I mean is this. Uh, no, you cannot live comfortably on $10,000 a year. But if you can simply muster enough uh, cooperation to uh, link up with somebody else, whether it's a spouse or a friend or anybody else, you've got $20,000 a year, and you, you can live a existence above the poverty line. You manage to get together with two other people, you've got $30,000 a year. And you add in just a low-paying job, and you're way over the poverty line. So in order to be poor under the universal basic income, you have to work at it. Right. And you have to basically uh, work really hard at having no friends in the end, Charles. I mean, that's what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. 
and and uh, but that leads to a, a longer conversation we need to have, and that is the secondary effects. And you're quite right about the implication. You can have lots of possibilities in your life if you don't try to live like a hermit and instead are engaged with the people around you. Yeah, and it's about incentives in the end, Charles. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times my dad had had me work with inner city kids in Newark. And the rules and regulations for so many people trapped in poverty is that they act they actually have to do things that keep them there. This, in the end, yeah. creates a whole different set of incentives in the end. Let me give you a couple of examples that I think would be really powerful. Uh, one of them is that right now, as you just pointed out, if you are on welfare, uh, you've gone through a long process to qualify for that. If you move away to get a job someplace else, you're going to lose those. For that matter, if you if you get a job where you are, you're going to pay very hard, high marginal tax rates, so you don't get a job. You just sit there. Under my plan, you keep everything you earn and still keep your grant until you're making $30,000 of earned income, by which time you can't afford to quit. So if, you're, if you are at a, making $10,000 a year at a low-income job, plus your $10,000 disposable income, all at once you have a, a, a reasonable income to work with. The other kind of incentive that I think is going to be very interesting to watch has to do with having, having babies if you don't have a husband. Right now, having a baby, if you don't have a husband, creates an income stream that would not exist otherwise. Under the plan I'm talking about, having a baby is a drain on an income stream that wouldn't exist, that does exist anyway. Uh, the, the incentives are ab- absolutely reversed. And young women have to ask themselves, okay, uh, do I want to have a baby? And if you do have a baby, you're going to have to spend that $10,000 on supporting the baby. That's going to change a whole lot of thinking. Indeed. I think the corollary there, Charles, is also that when it comes to maybe having a husband and keeping one, that we have a a reverse ratcheting effect here too. I mean, for so long, uh, the rules kept the man out of the house. And we know, Charles, if there's one way to avoid poverty in this country, it's to get married and stay married. Yeah. And, And not only that, you're now looking at a whole different set of possibilities which is, you know, suppose that you're a guy and you're making $15,000 a year at a low-paying job. You, you really are, actually, if you're responsible, you can't think about marriage because you can't support somebody that way. If you're making $15,000 at a low-income job under my plan, you're going to have a net family income of $35,000 when you add in both grants. All at once, marriage becomes something that you can do. When we come back, more about marriage and so much more with Charles Murray after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Charles Murray, and we're talking to him about so many things, 
but in particular, the welfare state, what's happening to the middle class, and a policy solution to working class folks and to the poor that may make more sense than anything we've heard here on Our American Stories. Charles, you're working coming apart, and I hate to go backwards, but I want to go backwards to go forwards. And and you wrote a lot about, well, the these two towns, these two hypothetical towns, and one was upper middle class, and one was a formerly working class neighborhood. And Belmont and Fishtown were those two towns. And right. what you were really writing about, I think, Charles, is something that neither the left or right have been able to come to grips with. And I think it has a lot to do with what's happening in our political landscape. And that is the working class is getting killed. They're not getting ahead. They're getting left behind. And, well, in, in some respects, how does the release of this old book, the 2006 book, In Our Hands, uh, correlate to or seem a part of the story you were telling in Coming Apart? I think that there's a relationship between Coming Apart and uh, the book I originally published in 2006, insofar as we could already see in 2006 the ways in which the working class was hurting. And it was also apparent at that time, and has only become more apparent since then, uh, the degree to which the government was complicit in that, in the way that it was running its welfare state. So in, in a way, you've had the problems that were described in Coming Apart of long before the book was actually published. And the universal basic income, in my own mind, is a response to some of those problems. And one of the things, Charles, I think we don't talk enough about, those who believe in free enterprise, is the forces of technology and artificial intelligence and all these new things, driverless technology, on the label, the effect of all this on the labor market. And we have to be prepared for this, Charles, and we have to have answers for people. Exactly. The you know I understand that people have been worried about losing jobs to technology ever since the Luddites uh, a couple of centuries ago. I'm afraid that the argument is very strong that this time it's different, because we're not just talking about the automation of some working-class jobs. We're talking about the automation of all sorts of middle-class, white-collar jobs. Uh, There are all, by a lot, I don't mean a few hundred thousand, I mean millions of them. For example, we have a lot of people uh, currently employed in telephone support for all kinds of uh, businesses, whether it's United Airlines or uh, a, a catalog selling goods. Well, those jobs are going to disappear to artificial intelligence within a matter of years. Plus, we're going to have driverless cars. We're going to have four million uh, drivers and bus, bus drivers and taxi drivers uh, out of work. It just goes up and down the job ladder. I think it is realistically true that within the foreseeable future, a life well lived will often be one which does not involve a job traditionally defined. It will still involve useful activities, whether they in the community and with the people around you. But we better have something in place that can help people out when the old-fashioned kind of job has been transformed. You bet. And this universal income idea of yours, a guaranteed one, can really help people either in transition between the many jobs we'll have, or as you just put it, Charles, maybe no real job per se as we used to think about it. Well, consider, for example, the cost that has been exerted on our communities uh, by both parents being at work. I am not against the feminist revolution and the expansion of opportunities for women in the workforce, 
But it is also true that there are lots of women who are mothers of children who, if they could afford it, would prefer to stay home with all the implications that has, not just for child care, which are good, but also the implications for the human resources that go into making a community work. And all of our listeners who are married, as uh, I am, and have a wife who is very active in the community, know the enormous contribution that is made to everyday life when you have people at home uh, available to do those kinds of work. If you have a universal basic income, among other things, you are going to have many, many more marriages where you have one of the two people, usually the woman probably, at home providing that kind of social capital. The advantages yeah. of that are likely to be huge. No doubt. And social capital is a, is a key word, a key two words put together. And you write about that so much in Coming Apart, and that is that all of the social capital that used to exist in working-class neighbor- neighborhoods, and we're talking the B'nai B'rith, uh, the, the clubs, the rotary, uh, the church, the family, uh, so much of that has been eviscerated. And what your proposal outlines, Charles, is a way forward. Yes. Uh, it, it, it outlines, it's not just that you'll have more time available in the ways I just described. You also are going to be putting the response to human needs back where those human needs can best be met, which is in the locality. Uh, Lee, let me give you a specific example that I like to use. Suppose you have the classic case of a guy who uh, drinks too much, he's irresponsible, he, by the a week before the end of the month, he's used up his uh, guaranteed income, doesn't have a job, he needs help. Well, there's no longer a government bureaucracy for him to go to. He's got to go to a girlfriend, to a sister, a brother, a parent, a neighbor, a friend, the Salvation Army. He's got to go to someone and say, hey, i got to stay alive uh, until the beginning of the next month. The response at this point can be, in the way it cannot be now, Okay, we aren't going to let you starve in the streets, but also don't tell us you're helpless, and it's time for you to get your act together, because we know you're going to get another deposit at the beginning of the month, and it's time for you to start using that in a way which will give you a decent life. You will have, multiply that by 10 million times a day that that kind of interaction is going on around the country, and you have a whole new source of energy, I think, in helping people turn their lives around. And and it puts the agency, as you said, right back where it should be, not only in the locality, but in the end, Charles, in the individual. Exactly. It, it, it's, a, it's a contradictory thing. I get a lot of uh, people who say, oh, a universal basic income, uh, it just allows people to be irresponsible and uh, uh, waste their lives. In a funny kind of way, having an income stream forces responsibility upon you. You can no longer throw up your hands and say, oh, I'm helpless, there's nothing I can do. There is something you can do. And in that inescapable responsibility that a guaranteed income gives you lies a leverage point for getting people to change. Indeed, and that kind of change is what's needed. I don't think there are many people on either side of the political aisle who think what we're doing now works, who thinks that these big bureaucracies make sense, that all the money, the incentives... And the right generally just has been saying in the past, bootstrap, and the left has said more money, and they've been talking past each other both sides. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We don't do that typical left-right screaming match. But when we do rarely find something this interesting, 
and so compelling, we bring it to you. And it is no surprise that it comes from Charles Murray. And when we come back, more on his latest, a revision and update of his 2006 book, In Our Hands, more with Charles Murray, the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Charles Murray, and we're talking to him about so many things, but in particular, the welfare state, what's happening to the middle class, and a policy solution to working class folks and to the poor that may make more sense than anything we've heard here on Our American Stories. After Katrina struck New Orleans, and this is a bit of a sidebar, but uh, a number of churches around the country adopted a lot of those refugees, and ultimately... Most of them didn't come back. And it turns out Malcolm Gladwell is now looking at the recidivism rate of so many of these young people who left New Orleans. And it just, the drop was staggering, Charles. And in yeah. some respects, what we're doing with so much of our money is we're, we're not giving a people a choice. They're, they're stuck with their HUD payment. They're stuck with their school. They're stuck. We're spending the money. 
But there's no agency, there's no accounting for the individual to do what they want or need with the money. There's no choice in the end, Charles. And when there's no choice, there's no, oh my goodness, there's, there's no freedom. And there is no sense of it is realistically possible that I can get out of this situation. And in the case of Katrina, it took a hurricane, and all at once they found themselves forced into a new environment. But for those that were adopted by the churches, an environment that provided them with all sorts of resources they didn't have before. In the case of the universal basic income, you have two kinds of mobility. One is you it's just much easier to get up and move and go where the jobs are. But the other kind of mobility it gives you is more choice in where you are going to live within your community, and how you are going to live within your community. You are not frozen into place by all these tentacles that attach you to the various government bureaucracies that are providing you with your benefits. On the contrary, it is now up to you to establish the connections with the people around you uh, that will embed you in the life of the community. Now, Charles, you're at the American Enterprise Institute, and the key word there, I think, uh, aside from American, is enterprise. And as you had mentioned before, there are any number of folks who've criticized this. I looked at some of the comments on the Wall Street Journal's page when you ran this long piece several Fridays ago. What, what has been the response on the right? And then what's been the response on the left? Because something tells me there are people on both sides of the aisle who don't like this. <laughs> that's that's absolutely true. A lot of people on the right say, oh, no, what you've got to do is move people into work. And that's a great idea. It ignores, I think, the wide variety of human situations because a lot of times moving people into work is not a viable option. And the second question is, what's the best people to, way to move people into work? Uh, to uh, have a training program to do that or a workfare program or is it to provide people with a situation in which going to work means pure profit? Now, obviously, my critics disagree. I'm inclined to think that I'm going to move more people into work uh, than they do. On the left, there's a lot of sympathy for spending more money on the poor and a lot of people who actually want a guaranteed income. But I want to replace the welfare state. I want all of those bureaucracies involved in the administration of all of those programs to disappear, to be replaced by checks deposited electronically into bank accounts. And uh, people on the left hate the idea of putting that many government workers out of work. And also, I think they kind of hate the idea of saying to low-income people, your life is in your hands. You make the decisions. You make what you will of it. I think the the uh, the urge to stage manage their lives is almost irresistible. I think so. I'm going to read something, Charles, that you wrote in the journal. A UBI would present the most disadvantaged among us with an open road to the middle class if they put their minds to it. It would say to people who have never had reason to believe it before, your future is in your hands. And that would be the truth. I mean, in the end, Charles, this is perhaps as hopeful a signal that you can send to a human being. In my time spent in inner city programs, coaching kids, what I felt myself, Charles, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm as optimistic a guy as you'll ever meet, I felt it bearing down on me, the, the, the weight of having no choice. Everywhere you turn, some government program or bureaucracy was dictating to you, the individual, what your limitations were. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's inherent in the nature of the beast. Um, 
governments first do think that they have the right answer, and so they know what people should do, even though individual cases are so wildly different that people will quite reasonably make different choices. And then in the way they are administered, they have certain rules that have to be followed, and those rules also are completely inflexible uh, with regard to the variations in real human conditions. Some people need a kick in the pants. Some people need a pat in the back. Government yep. bureaucracies can't make those choices. Yeah, they don't know, and they can't, they can't possibly know. And, and Charles, what, what is the, and I think some of the audience was probably wondering this, in all of these transfers that currently happen, how much of this money gets locked up by the costs of the st- state itself? Do we know that? Do you have a number or a percentage? I, I, tried to get the, I tried to find that number, and it got to be really hard to do it. I don't think it is as large as some people think it is because you have, let's face it, most of the money in the transfers is spent on Social Security and Medicare. Right. And, and, and an awful lot of that, especially Social Security, is highly automated. So you don't have that big a bureaucracy administering Social Security, and Social Security accounts for a huge amount of the money. The, uh, the, the poverty programs and the welfare programs have a much thicker uh, bureaucratic tail but they proportionally deal with a smaller amount of uh, the budget. Now, some people would say, Charles, that you've been at this a really long time, because on Losing Ground, uh, your first book uh, about Mm -hmm. welfare and its impact and its effect on civilization, and particularly American life, uh, was written, again, in 1984. Uh, Has this been something, of all the things you've written about, Charles, that weighs most on your mind? I've Well, first, I, I... started to think of a guaranteed income as a policy way back in the, in the 1980s, not long after losing ground. And I even went as far at that point uh, as to run some numbers. And the answer I came up with is, it's unaffordable. It's completely, it's going to cost way more than the current system. When I did it in 2006, I did the numbers again. And at that point, I saw that the costs of my system and the costs of the, of the existing system would cross in about 2010, 2011. So I said, okay, I published the book in 2006. It's not going to happen anyway for several years, by which time it will be affordable. And Lee, the story now, of course, in 2016 is my system would be way cheaper uh, than the system we have in place. By the year 2020, it would be almost a trillion dollars a year cheaper. And have you spoken, I mean, you're you're there with... So many great people at AEI, and Arthur Brooks leads such a great shop. What, have you spoken to people on the Hill about this? We don't do politics often, but this is one of those ideas that you would think, just as there is opposition on the left and the right, school choice has created strange bedfellows, Charles. I think this yeah. will, too. It has the potential. Uh, let's face it, in this political season, uh, the idea that this would be taken up is a pipe dream. Yeah. And what will happen in the future depends a lot on what happens in the election this fall. Uh, Sooner or later, there is this reality, Lee, and that is the entitlements must have major reform because we cannot afford uh, the, the course we are on. So whether there will be major reform is not in question. It will have to occur. And as that becomes apparent, I have hopes that the universal basic income 
will begin to be seen as a legitimate alternative. Well, and I think, Charles, you know, I spent a lot of time in the talk radio circuit, and I, I listen a lot, and I've, I've gone to a couple of Bernie Sanders rallies, I've been to some Donald Trump rallies, and, and I think something like this appeases what I think is a core sentiment going on, is that the system is rigged against the average guy. And this, in, in a very profound way, addresses an issue that Washington hasn't thought about or talked about in a long time. I think it has a lot of potential, and and uh, the financial realities may force us to consider it. Well, Charles, that's, that's that's the advantage of a crisis, and that is the advantage of a crisis. And Charles, thanks so much as always for doing the work you do, and thanks for this compelling work. And folks, if you want to read Charles Murray's book, go to Amazon.com. It's in our hands, and this is our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Leonard Skinner and Greg here. I said, who is this again? And, Len- and he said, I know every Leonard Skinner song, and I also know every Boston song. And I thought, wow, that's something to brag about. Um, but that, that is, I guess, in some strange way. Um, but we're playing that because, well, our friend Heidi Mitchell over at the Wall Street Journal, who does the burning question column, well, this week's burning question was, what makes some people sweat more than others? And I have a dear friend who has a bunch of boys, and they're all ball-playing age, like 10 to 18. And my goodness, you walk into that pantry where they put all their cleats, and it, the, the, we should bottle that and drop it on terrorists because it, it is it is. I'm rancid. going to be sick. <laughs> so, Heidi, we're, we're, we're so happy to have you again on this burning question. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm just thinking about my 10-year-old socks now. Ooh, ooh, that smell. It's brutal, is it? It's brutal. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about, hey, what, what led you to this one this week? What was the water cooler discussion? How did you get to this one? Um, you know, so I think someone was complaining about, um, I know what it was. We were, I was coming out of a concert with a friend, and her boyfriend was drenched, and it was winter, it was still cool. Well, it still is winter here in New York, and uh, it was. And he, I was like, "Why are you sweating?" <laughs> and he's like, "I just sweat all the time. I'm always sweaty. I don't know why." And so that that led to, hmm, I don't sweat that much. Yeah. Not even at the gym that much. Right, and that that'll do it. And by the way, you know, I was always thinking about all these different Seinfeld episodes: the close talker, the the bubble boy. But there was never one on the heavy sweater. I was There's really. Sweater one, you're right. No, and I always remember Samurai. Do you remember Samurai Samurai Taylor, Samurai Butcher? Remember John Belushi every week? He would come out with a sword and he'd have a different job, and the solution was always to take out the sword and chop something in half. He was always sweating. Always sweat. He was always sweating. I had a waiter one night, and he was really sweating, and you could tell that this was not meant for him. And I thought, what? What if there was a sweaty guy that you followed around from job to job, and every single job he took, he was so sweaty, there was no way it was going to work out. So we're talking about your friend, who's obviously a a real sweater. What? What? What did you learn about sweating? A, I I would think first, tidy sweating is important, right? I mean, it serves a biological function. Right. I mean, so pretty much everything, when we start these columns, I always look at them from a kind of evolutionary perspective. And, you know, so your body has evolved so that if it's too hot, 
you sweat and that cooling, that, that evaporation process. So the water comes out of you and as it evaporates, it, it feels cooler. You just, it lowers your core temperature. So, you know, your body has evolved to do it. Of course, when you, when you sweat, you're also sweating out some electrolytes and some stuff that your body, salts and stuff that your body needs. So that's why, you know, there's lots and lots of marketplace out there for, um, for drinks that claim to rehydrate you with those electrolytes and stuff. But usually typical food can help you. Typical food and beverage can help you get your rehydrated. But it's also, it also interestingly, um, it hydrates your skin too because it kind of locks in the moisture. So there's all good things with sweating. And, and, and so what did you learn? Why, why is it that some people do sweat more than others? And by the way, why do we sometimes, like I know myself, I, I'm not a heavy sweater, but every once in a while in certain contexts, especially before giving a, a speech in a large public gathering, I will really start to get the sweats. And then I've got to sit down, like relax, and then it goes away. But that's right. the one. And I'll so, sweat. I can't stop it. It's, so actually, it's, it's interesting because there's two different kinds of sweating. So there's the kind of sweating that's from, you know, elevating your heart rate from, from being active. And then there's something that's called emotional sweating, which is what you're talking about. And it's nervousness usually tips it off. And basically, your, your body is just going into, you're, you're scared, right? You're nervous to go on stage. And so you go into this fight or flight mode. And um, sweating it out is, is just one of the responses that your brain does. It's not totally understood. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's, I guess it, you know, part of what, you know, your, your, your heart rate gets boosted, adrenaline starts flowing. And so some people will sweat. I'm not one of those people, but I do get nervous, but I don't sweat. So yeah, it's like, and, and then people that really sweat, excessive sweaters, people with something called hyperhidrosis, and there are whole um, university programs devoted to this and, and, and centers devoted to this. That's about one to 3% of the population. And they, they just sweat. They just sweat from everything. They sweat sitting on their couch. And that's just, not, it's not normal. So if you're feeling that, you should talk to your doctor. No, that's not. And you did talk to, what I love, Heidi, is that you actually talk to doctors who do this stuff. And you talk to a doctor named Dr. Harmeek J. Sukasian, Sukasian, <laughs> and he's at the Cedar Sinai Hyperhidrosis Clinical uh, Center, and he's a team leader. Which means there are people who, as you just said, sit on a couch, listen to classical music, and sweat. And my goodness, this has got to be a problem at a minimum for your love life. I know, and you know the sad thing is that there isn't—they don't really know why people have this. It's like they think it's a miswiring of you know, something in your brain that um, these, these gland clusters just get overactivated by just a little, little bit of stimulation. It could be like a tiny rise in the temperature. And you just, if once that, he says, once that faucet's open, you just can't shut it down. And they're just not, not totally sure. But he said he gave some, some examples of like, you know, kids that couldn't get through a test because they were smudging their, their papers as they were writing it out. Um, they were sweating so much during these tests. Um, or people that just are embarrassed to, to go out or can't buy nice clothes because they sweat through them and stain them. Um, and it can be, it can be socially inhibiting. Oh, it, it can be a killer. I had one of my dearest friends, he had that anxiety sweat when it came to dating. And it just, it, it didn't end well for him. And yeah. to this day, I mean, he is still a single guy and he just thinks Aww. girls don't like him. And they do, but they just, he, they, he can't stop it. He's gone to doctors. There's, he's tried everything in his life and he, he can't do it. They and, do have Botox now that is one of the things that seems to work. 
Um, he's, you know, that sort of a, and then they have a, a further thing where they go Botox, which paralyzes those um, glands. Right. And then the next thing you can do is um, he does the surgery and he says it's like it does a great job, but it's the last, last, last resort. Effort. Yeah. 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 And in fact, um, my, my buddy had pondered that, but he's just one of those guys who goes, I'm just not doing that. I'm just yeah. not doing that. I'm going, well, whatever. I mean, the alternative is you're going to be alone the rest of your life. Aww, no, that's rough. Guy. So let's let's talk about what else might cause sweating. I mean, for, for, for those of us who can maybe impact it one way or the other on at least the periphery, medications, well, so, food choices, yeah. talk about those things. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's tons of them. I mean, the list is super, super long about what can increase your sweating, um, like from insulin or any kind of antidepressant, even even aspirin. Of course, you know this from experience, caffeine, alcohol, they can boost your heart rate, so that can boost your core temperature. Of course, spicy foods, for some people, it's just, this, it's just capsicum. It's just the stuff, the chemical that's in the spicy peppers that can trigger, it, it increases your core temperature. So anything that will increase your core temperature can um, can get you to just, just, again, that faucet gets turned on and it just can't get turned off. But what's super interesting, I thought, um, that I learned from, from Dr. Sukazian is that um, less fit people, it's like a lot about your fitness level. So studies show that less fit people, they, they sweat more when they go to the gym um, because their bodies are really trying to cool down more. Right. But, but you see fit people sweating a lot too because their bodies are so efficient that their body is starting to cool down right away. It knows that it's got to get itself back to regular, to be healthy, to get its core temperature back down to a regular 98.6. And so they start sweating straight away. So, so fit people will start sweating sooner, but less fit people will sweat more, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And tell us this for our audience listening. What can we do to reduce our sweat? Are there things we can do? Um, of course. So there's lots that you can do. The first, the easiest thing you can do is to wear natural fabrics. Um, you know, if you look at your label, probably everything you own is, is a blend. So try and stick to cottons and, and wools, and they just let you breathe more, right? So you're not inhibiting um, your body, those glands that are going to sweat. And then, um, and then you can get uh, a higher aluminum uh, antiperspirant. And you can even put that on your hands. Some people use it on their hands or like on their necks or the bottoms of their feet for mm-hmm. your stinky, your friend's stinky um, teenagers. Yep. Um, and that can, that can, that aluminum content, it actually kind of damages the cells. Um, some people are afraid of it because of t- uh, p- potential ties to some forms of cancer, but um, it's a sketchy link in. So, uh, but uh, but anyway, if you if you're a big sweater, um, you know you might that is certainly something to consider. And then if that you can go one step further and get an antiperspirant from your dermatologist that's like really high in this aluminum base, and uh, and that will basically kind of kill off. That will do the job. Those, most of those glands, yeah, it should do the job. I mean, some, sometimes you know there's 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 other disorder, there's underlying illnesses like. Um, menopause, um, tuberculosis, like some sort of forms of cancer. Um, and, and, you know, those, I think people tend to know, but sweating can be, can be one indicator. So if you're super sweaty, um, especially at night, and if you recognize that pattern of like, you're, you're sweating, 
you know, only at night for no apparent reason, then you should see a doctor. Well, Heidi, as always, and by the way, we didn't get into smelly sweat as opposed to not smelly sweat. I think that's another column, though, Heidi. Uh, we, <laughs> take a shower, dude. <laughs> take, take a shower, shower dude. Take just... another one. <laughs> I hear you. Heidi Mitchell, <laughs> The Wall Street Journal, The Burning Question column. What makes some people sweat more than others? Heidi, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we like to do, well, every kind of storytelling imaginable. And thanks so much for joining us more after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that was Elvis Presley's song, It Feels So Right. And his lyrics, It Feels So Right, So Right, How Can It Be So Wrong? A sentiment we'll now be talking about in the space of charity. And we'll be talking with someone who believes that what feels so right is often so wrong. Bob Lupton is the author of Toxic Charity, How Churches and Charities Hurt Those Who Help and How to Reverse It a book that shook much of the charitable world into reevaluating their efforts. And today he's with us to talk about his recent follow-on book, Charity Detox, What Charity Would Look Like If We Cared About Results. Bob, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Bob, tell us John Perkins' story, how it shaped your and your family's story, because I think that's the way to best start off this hour. And that was a story about an uh, experience uh, that you're now bringing to this important discussion. Well, John Perkins is a um, kind of my mentor. He's a third grade dropout, grew up in uh, Mississippi, uh, sharecropping uh, back well before integration. He's in his 80s now. But uh, John was nearly killed in the civil civil rights movement and uh, barely escaped Mississippi, went to California and then had a life-changing experience that uh, convinced him to come back to Mississippi and uh, commit himself to developing a young generation of of young leaders who would take their place uh, in helping the poor of that uh, of that area. John uh, uh, was and and still is an inspiration to me. He believes, as I do now, that living. Among those you serve is clearly the most effective way of uh, of breaking the poverty cycle and transforming communities. So it's because of John's uh, influence that uh, I 
made the decision to move with my family into inner city Atlanta, uh, where I have uh, been serving and uh, trying to make a difference for nearly four decades now. Well, you know, one of the things that you, you learned from John's experience was that while he was working with these young people, they would often leave after he helped them and leave the very communities that were, they were resourced to and for. Talk about that. Well, I saw the same thing in Atlanta. For about 10 years, I commuted into the inner city uh, from the suburbs and uh, did a lot of work with young people uh, and families, helping them to uh, get out of uh, very bad situations, move out of the projects to better neighborhoods, which was uh, which was very good for them. Uh, but what eventually dawned on me was that as each one of those uh, rising stars left, the the community was poorer and a more uh, more hopeless, desperate place to live. So what was helping individuals uh, was harming uh, the neighborhoods that we were also trying to help. So uh, John's experience uh, is, is my experience is certainly mirrored uh, in uh, John's. You know, there's a pretty remarkable. This is a segue of sorts, but we did a, an hour on Buck O'Neill. I don't know if you know Buck O'Neill's story, but he was the manager of the Kansas City Monarchs uh, in the Black uh, Baseball League and uh, ultimately became uh, the first uh, 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 Major League Baseball manager as an African-American. A remarkable story. We found an interview where he was talking about what the old black neighborhoods in the South were like. Now, there was segregation, and it was terrible. But Buck, what Buck was also saying was when all those black folks left those cities and left those towns, and left their, and took their store ownership talents and all their talents and fled off to better neighborhoods or different neighborhoods, that it really killed the neighborhoods they'd left behind. Talk a little about that. Well, yeah, and that same thing uh, has has happened in uh, uh, throughout the country. Certainly, uh, Atlanta's been my primary uh, experience, base of operation, and uh, those inner-city neighborhoods never have recovered from the out-migration of their more capable uh, neighbors that, uh, that, that brought uh, some good stability and education and decent jobs and good models, uh, all of that to their communities. Uh, when segregation uh, was in place, they were, they were segregated places, but uh, in the advent of the Civil Rights Movement, that opened up opportunities uh, for... Uh, families to move out of those inner city communities and and the more capable did move out and uh, they have uh, many of those communities have never recovered from that no doubt and of course we're not ever even suggesting that you want to go back to segregation but there were some there were some negative there were some incredible positive impact but the negative impact was that folks just uh well they left and let's let's talk about helpful versus hurtful charity uh, talk about those two things. Well, certainly, uh, certainly helpful charity is uh, what enables people to, uh, first of all, get out of emergency situation. There's certainly emergency care that's, uh, that is needed. Uh, but most of the needs in our society uh, are a function of chronic poverty. Uh, a series of decisions have been made. And so what chronic poverty needs is a development response. In other words, a a pathway to help folks move 
take measured steps to move out of their poverty situation into self-sufficiency. Uh, the, what becomes hurtful is when organizations, churches, nonprofits, and others continue to give emergency support to folks that are in a chronic poverty situation. In other words, that's what, that's what ultimately produces dependency. Uh, and when, and when you uh, give uh, well-intended contributions, clothes, food, and others, to uh, folks that are, uh, that are not in an emergency situation, uh, there are unintended consequences. People, uh, the, uh, the work ethic is eroded, people's dependency increases, uh, obsessive dignity diminishes, and so what is intended to be helpful and good ends up uh, being hurtful to the very folks we were wanting to help. This is Lee Habib, and we're listening to Bob Lupton, Charity Detox. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue now with Bob Lupton. And he wrote the book, Toxic Charity, How Churches and Charities Hurt Those Who Help and How to Reverse It, a book that so shook much of the charitable world that many of them had to reevaluate their efforts. And today he's with us to talk about his recent follow-on book, Charity Detox, What Charity Would Look Like If We Cared About Results. I wanted to have you, Bob, talk about a little contrast in studies of of what worked in one place and what might not have worked. And in Charity Detox, you tell us the powerful story of a contrast in one neighborhood of Knoxville, Tennessee. Tell us that story. Well, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a very fine uh, rescue mission in, in Knoxville that had been um, sheltering homeless uh, men, women, and families uh, for many years, and uh, like most shelters, uh, they provided free beds, free clothing, uh, and uh, a safe place to, to sleep at night. Um, they 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 caught this idea that perhaps their residents uh, they were overlooking some of the talents and abilities of their residents. And began ex- began exploring if they put their if they engaged their residents in in work while they were there making beds mopping floors working in the laundry that uh, that wouldn't be a cruel thing actually it would be communicating to them you have something of real value that you can bring to the table and and no one is so poor that they have nothing to bring to the table and so. They began that process, and it's and it uh, it absolutely turned around their model. Uh, today, they have uh, several businesses operating out of the shelter. Uh, every every person who makes the decision to come and stay in their program gets a caseworker, and uh, and they they measure their success by not the numbers of people that fill their beds or the number of meals that they serve, 
but the number of the, a number of folks who uh, actually move out of poverty that uh, become independent that have their own apartment, that uh, are working full-time jobs, that are paying off bad debts, that are reconciling with their families, et cetera, et cetera. And so that number, uh, number of folks that are successful are a good bit smaller than the, uh, than the large numbers, the hundreds that uh, did fill their beds, but the outcomes are, uh, are dramatically different. So the, uh, they, they switched from measuring activities to actually measuring outcomes, and it just, it just made all the difference in the world. Now you compare what they are doing to what's happening outside their facility under the large viaduct where the expressway goes over, that's considered charity central, and that's where all the uh, homeless gather for free food and handouts that charitable folks, churches, and others bring in there and distribute to the poor. And, uh, and that creates uh, all manner of chaos in the community. So you've got one charity model that is, that is frankly destructive not only to the community but to the recipients, and then right beside it a model uh, that is actually developing people and, uh, and moving them uh, out of poverty. Quite a quite a, a contrast. And I think you know if you think it through, and I've I've often pondered this, but I think people of faith actually have to think about this in many respects differently than people who are secular. And that is that if you think everyone's a child of God, and you think everyone has capacities, then your job is to figure out and help them unearth them. And dependency yes. on on me is not the question; it's more dependency on God that becomes the question. Yep. And so so let's, you know, there's a quote that I wanted to read you. You said, I believe now, as I did when I wrote the first toxic charity, that the only effective charity is the kind that asks more from those who are being served, not less. And then you got into feed a person once, it elicits appreciation. Feed him twice, it creates anticipation. Feed him three times, it creates expectation. Feed him four times, it creates entitlement. Feed him five times. It produces dependency. Talk about that. I think that's one of the more profound things I've read in a long time. And and, and work it through with me where you came up with that. Well, I've I've seen that process. Have participated in that in that process. It's a downward spiral that uh, that repeats itself over and over again. Uh, it's the result of people with good hearts and good motivations. Uh, thinking that one-way giving uh, to people in need somehow uh, produces good results. Uh, and those, if, if you uh, live in that environment for, for any length of time at all, you see that there is a, a downward spiral that almost always ends in dependency, and so there's there's a reason why the poor remain poor in in our culture. For all of the the good that we do, the uh, tons and tons of food and clothing that we collect and distribute to the poor of our nation, uh, you would think that for all of that activity, the poor would be less poor today. Uh, but in fact, that poverty needle 
has not moved in, in a positive direction. As a matter of fact, it has moved in a negative direction. And I think that it is because uh, we've been giving uh, from the motivation of the heart, but we have not been engaging our minds in the process of giving. So that's what, uh, that's what toxic charity and, and, and charity detox have been calling for. Let's, uh, let's engage our, our minds and, and uh, look for different outcomes uh, to what our, charity, uh, what our charity is intended to do. And, you know, you also are not shy about looking into the Christian missionary industrial complex, as you like to call it. What's your beef? What's your beef with Christian missionaries? And by the way, I've had these discussions with many a many a group that I think are actually providing a what we all call the law of unintended consequences, which is getting the actual opposite result of the thing you desired. Yeah. yeah well, the 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 mission trip industry is a very very big industry these days. Uh, we send out uh, about two million short term missionaries every year. At a cost of uh, somewhere between three and four billion dollars, uh, so uh, it's it's a very big industry. Uh, but if you if you look at the actual outcomes of that, uh, it's more about us and our feeling good than it is about actually helping those we go and serve. Well, and there was one example in the book where used clothing imports, for instance caused a 50% increase in unemployment in the African textile industry from 1981 to 2000. And this is because all the, well, I would call them naive uh, missionaries, bring in caseloads and boatloads of free clothes, thus destroying an actual industry that creates jobs. And between 1992 and 2006, a half million workers in Nigeria lost their jobs due to the inflow of donated clothing. We're talking to Bob Lupton. We're interviewing him on his new book, Charity Detox. And, well, if you want to hear any of this and you want to hear more about what we do and the stories we bring to you, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And, Bob, you know, what do you say to this? Like this clothing example that I cite from your book, what do you say to folks? When I have the opportunity to speak with groups that are doing uh, this kind of uh, global outreach, uh, there are a few principles that I lay out to them. Sometimes they don't want to hear it. But uh, one of the things I say is do not give anything away. Uh, When you take in suitcases full of of clothing and shoes and giveaway items, it, uh, it again creates unhealthy dependency it erodes the economy that is already there uh in developing countries uh most folk are making their living through little micro enterprises they're uh making little pottery and baskets and other kinds of things that they sell to tourists along along the road so they they eke out a living that way well when uh, when the tour bus uh, comes rumbling up the road, those folks that have a, a stand n- near the bus stop, they get all excited because this is business coming. Yep. Yep. This is Lee Habib, and this is Bob Lupton we're talking to. His book, Charity Detox. When we come back, more in-depth. 
storytelling from Bob. And by the way, it'll hopefully make you think about how you think about your charitable giving. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and we're continuing our interview with Bob Lupton and his new book, Charity Detox. What charity would look like if we cared about results? Ouch. I think sometimes we just don't want to think about it, Bob. I mean, I think sometimes it's that we're not thoughtful enough uh, and that we want to, I think, as you put it before in the last segment, feel better for ourselves thinking that we've yeah. done we've done either God's work or we've done good, and then we can check that box off and we can move on to the next thing. Uh, I wanted to share one other thing that you had written that was really remarkable to me. A Texas church went to Nicaragua, built a bunch of houses that the poor then sold when they left. The cash was more valuable to them, and they were used to sleeping in bad conditions. So you say focus on activities versus outcomes. Talk about that. Well, the the the, uh, the Texas group that uh, built the houses, it was a it was a a wonderful endeavor. They they saw these folks that were living and raising their families uh, in the dump uh, in Managua. You know, they're filthy and uh, following the garbage trucks around, and they were so moved by that that they they decided decided they would do something. So they purchased land. And uh, and built homes uh, for these families, almost a, a little village uh, on the countryside that had their own plot of land and clean air. And uh, of course, it was great celebration when the folks moved into their little houses. Uh, but a year later, uh, all of those folks had sold those homes and moved back to the dump. Uh, they were not they were not farmers; they were recyclers. And they had been recycling uh, materials, usable materials, uh, for generations. And so uh, it's a question of uh, listening more carefully to the needs of those we would serve rather than in uh, bringing in our own ideas of what people need. Well, we've described some of the problems, and I, actually it's the problem with the givers more than the acceptors. So how do we? Sure. Why do? How do we who give become better givers, and how do we become better missionaries and better people of faith? And by the way, for all the secular people living who are good givers, I know my family was, and I grew up in a secular home, and they. My mom was. I think she tithed better than most tithers, and she she was a lapsed Catholic who hadn't gone to church almost her entire adult life. Yeah. Well, uh, the, this whole idea of of going in and serving people of need has to be re-examined. Um, most of the work we do uh, could be better done uh, by locals uh, on on site. I was talking with a uh, a Nicaraguan banker uh, some time ago who uh, went into micro lending. You know, little little loans for peasant people uh, to help build up their businesses. And I was asking him how he worked with the churches in Nicaragua. And he said that there are whole sections of his country where he can't do any micro lending at all. He said, he said, my people say, why do we want to borrow money? Uh, 
these American church partners uh, give it to us. He said, why do we want to borrow money for uh, to build a church? They build it for us. And then uh, Juan said, they are turning my people into beggars. And so uh, that's, that's the kind of impact uh, that we, that we uned- inadvertently are causing uh, in our attempt to help. So we're not thinking uh, in, in that old axiom, teach a man to fish. Um, That's right. We're sort of ignoring this, and again, right. this is de- is a deep biblical principle. Why aren't why aren't more business leaders engaged in this kind of work? Because it sounds like, if anything. That's what we need. But then again, to your point before, if a business leader comes in and he's competing against free, well, it's impossible. And by the way, I have this argument with my friends who are progressives in this country. Free is hard to compete with, but free is really bad. Oh, free, free is, uh, free is, uh, very disempowering. Uh, where, where, yeah. uh, business people can have a very positive, redemptive impact is if uh, if they go in and actually start for-profit businesses that uh, that make money with the poor. I have a friend here from Atlanta that was a uh, made his living uh, importing Pier One type stuff from uh, from the Pacific Rim, and uh, he had trouble uh, with quality control, timely shipping. So he said, "I can do this better myself." So he and his wife moved to the Philippines, and he opened up a factory there. And uh, started manufacturing these household goods. Uh, that was ten years ago. I saw him at a Christmas party this last year, and uh, asked him how his business was going. And uh, he said that he had three thousand people employed. And uh, so I said that must really be changing the area. And he said, Oh yeah, it is. It's uh, uh, it's probably created three thousand auxiliary jobs. Uh, around his businesses, and he said they do profit sharing. They have health care for all their workers. They have daycare for their workers, uh, and so it has it has dramatically impacted a a poverty culture uh, and given folks a a whole new lease on life. They've they've planted three churches, and so it, here here's a here's a a man with a uh, an entrepreneurial spirit who wants to do good as well as do well, and it's transforming transforming a whole culture. Well, it would take, you send 50 missionaries into the same place for 50 years, and you wouldn't accomplish the same kind of positive impact that one committed businessman uh, can do using his God-given ability uh, to create wealth. So the business business people are very much needed as uh, the the new missionaries on the field. Yeah, but they if don't. We want to if we want to change poverty. Yeah, we don't need their money. We need their talent. We need their That's invest. Right. We need their investment, which is a very different thing than a gift. Absolutely. Yep. It's it's creating jobs. It's enabling folks to uh, use their abilities, their hard work to take measured steps to move out of poverty situation into uh, what what I would call shalom, uh, a, a uh, sense of peace, prosperity, well-being, community, uh, which I believe is God's desire for, 
for all of us. You know, when I have these conversations with folks I really love, my, my pastor, others, and I talk about capitalism and how important it is that we people of faith, and, you know, and there it is, the parable of the talents. So, there, again, there, there it is in the word. What we do with our money, do we, do we hide it? Do we put it out into the world? Well, what capitalists do is they take that capital, they put it out into the world. They don't hoard it. They don't spend it on themselves. Why are people of faith so resistant to this thing called capitalism? And, and the two go hand in hand so beautifully. Look what it's produced here in this country. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I think... I think one of the reasons why uh, why we don't hear messages that uh, uh, that reinforce the importance of of wealth creation is because our pastors have gone to seminaries rather than business schools. Uh, they don't understand how business and the market works. I've uh, I've talked to to many uh, very wealthy business people. And to the person, they have said, my church just doesn't understand me, or my pastor doesn't understand me. They warn against the dangers of wealth, the seductiveness of mammon, but don't, don't ever preach that wealth creation is, one of, is a spiritual gift under, under the Lordship of Christ, being able to create wealth, which is to say create jobs that enable a society to flourish. You don't see that as, uh, as a godly thing, nor do they celebrate those that have that gift of wealth creation. But, no doubt. But it is certainly biblical. No doubt. And we're talking to Bob Lupton, his new book, Charity Detox, What Charity Would Look Like If We Cared About Results. And we'll finish up our conversation after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're closing out this hour, and it's a terrific hour, the conversation with Bob Lupton, and we're interviewing him on his new book, Charity Detox, What Charity Would Look Like If We Cared About Results. And uh, Bob, where we left off is I'd wanted to ask you about this thing called micro-lending, uh, because it's it's everywhere. You, you know, Mohamed Yanis won a Nobel Prize for this idea, and it's very popular uh, amongst uh, what I would call the NGO crowd. Um, talk yeah. about talk about why you're not a big fan of micro lending uh, and what are its deficiencies. Well, micro lending are small loans uh, to uh, peasant people to help them uh, increase uh, the size of their businesses. It may be a little loan to help a woman. Uh, buy a little bit more fruit to sell in her stand, uh, or a mother to buy uh, another treadle sewing machine so uh, she and her daughter can both sew garments to sell. And so micro-lending uh, is very important to, that, uh, to enable folks to uh, 
to live at a better survival level. And so micro-lending is helpful, but micro-lending does not move people out of poverty. It, it doesn't create wealth. And in order to create wealth, in order for people to thrive, uh, we know this in our own business climate, uh, a business has to come to scale. That means that it's more than just what I can produce with my own hands in one day. Uh, I have to have others working for me. I have to, to mechanize. I have to streamline. Uh, so a business has to grow in order to create wealth and make uh, and employ more people. Well, micro loans do not enable people to uh, to move from uh, from cottage industry uh, into uh, into full scale business. And uh, the reason why is if their business grows, uh, it comes onto the radar screen of the government. These small businesses, micro enterprises, are uh, they are uh, a part of an informal economy. So that means they don't pay taxes, they don't register with the government. But as soon as they get larger, they do have to do that, and, and which means they've got to fill out uh, a lot more government forms and be mechanized and worry about uh, marketing and packaging and health uh, uh, health. Uh, uh, yeah, the healthcare. Yeah, the, making sure that their product is safe, yeah. uh, which governments require. Well, in order to do that, it's a quantum leap for someone that has a little fruit stand to move into a full-fledged business. And so, what they need in order to become uh, to to actually create wealth are the kinds of talents that we have in our pews. Those are the business people. That run that run businesses and and we we do it better than anybody else in the world. Uh, we call it SMEs, small medium enterprises, and uh, that makes up that makes up eighty percent of the new jobs that we create every year in this society. Or it's fifty percent of the of the GNP. So we do it very well. Uh, we just haven't been using that talent to enable peasants in a struggling country to use those, develop those talents so that, so that their businesses can grow beyond micro uh, into SMEs. So that calls forth a whole different kind of missionary. That is, a, that is business as mission. And uh, if we're going to alleviate poverty, uh, our Christian business people are going to have to engage in the process. Now, Bob, in Charity Detox, you movingly tell John Coors' story. And I think the most important lesson from that story was his humility. I mean, it really moved us uh, over here in our studio about what he was doing wrong, a humility that is hard for actually any human being uh, to admit to himself, but a humility we must all bring into this discussion if we truly care about the poor. Share it with us. John Coors' story, well, if you well, can. Well, John Coors is a fine Christian man, has, uh, has been very successful, uh, and he uh, had the idea that uh, there are whole sections of this world, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, that just have, there's no electric grid at all, so they live on uh, fires that they collect uh, and uh, uh, and cook and heat over. And 
uh, he came up with a strategy to uh, provide very, very inexpensive energy, kind of propane tanks, that would allow people to have light in their homes and be able to cook without uh, the health problems that uh, smoky wood uh, creates. Uh, that idea uh, seemed like a good one, and he implemented that in many villages, uh, but over time realized that uh, as soon as folks, uh, as soon as their propane tank ran out, they didn't come to refill it, uh, they went back to gathering and burning sticks. And so John realized that the only way that this dream, he called it circles of light, uh, the only way that it could grow would be if you were going to subsidize it. And as a businessman, he said, no, subsidizing folks does not make them uh, strong and independent. And so uh, he pulled the plug on that, which was a, a very, a very courageous thing to do. And so he said, what people need are, are jobs. And so uh, he has changed his whole strategy uh, is going after other wealthy families to partner with African entrepreneurs who have good business skills but just don't have the, the capital and the connections uh, to enable their businesses to, to thrive. And so he's using his influence to develop those kind of partnerships that will enable African businesses to thrive, which means that they will, uh, they will create jobs which is the only way people move out of poverty. No doubt. And you know, let's talk about, in closing out this discussion, you know, obviously there's capital capital, and we all know that kind of capital, and that's money. And what people yep. are looking for in the for-profit world is a return on capital. And that's a word called profit, which generates all kinds of accountability and a great standard and system of measurement. We in America, well, at least most of us, understand how important profit is and capital. But let's talk about the human kind of capital. And I think that's the capital that matters most in the 21st century. Uh, you need the capital capital, that's the money. But without human capital, what do you got? Talk about that. Well, what we have in this country in abundance is uh, is not only know-how in how to run successful businesses. Uh, we have we have uh, motivation and and access to uh, monetary capital. And so, better than anybody else in the world, uh, our entrepreneurial ability uh, enables us. Uh, to thrive, that's that's personal capital. We also know how to to hire well, how to train well, uh, how to retain a workforce, have a healthy workforce. We know how to do all those things. Uh, what is missing in in developing worlds are uh, you call them the the missing middle. There's there's a whole large segment of people. Uh, who are scratching out a living uh, uh, just in micro-businesses. And then there's a small band of wealth at the top. In Nicaragua, it's it's 11 families that control about 90% of the wealth of the country. So that's typical of developing countries. So what we have is uh, we've got the, the wealth of ability uh, and know-how and experience 
that if we bring it into those developing countries, uh, we can we can have a profound effect on helping folks move economically, socially, spiritually uh, out of poverty. I'm going to leave with one quick question. If you could give us about a minute on this, Bob, this idea of re-neighboring. What is re-neighboring? Re-neighboring is deciding that the most effective way to uh, end poverty uh, in a community is to end the isolation, which means that uh, we as committed people, uh, committed to be neighbors, particularly among those in need, actually relocate uh, and become neighbors in places of need and, uh, and join with folks that are struggling. And from the inside of the environment, uh, we work to affect positive change. Uh, that more than any other single strategy uh, in this country uh, is a poverty alleviator that changes neighborhoods uh, when committed, caring, capable, connected people become neighbors. Well, Bob Lupton, thanks so much for this book. We'd love to have you on uh, regularly. We do a lot of talk about generosity in this country because there is tremendous amounts, but we have to talk about efficacy and effectiveness too. Uh, thanks for your book, Charity Detox, and thanks for spending the hour with us. Nice to be with you. You Thank bet. You. you bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear this and everything we do.